Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Patrick Hart Cash, born the 27th of May 1965 in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. And what was it like growing up for you? Uh, what was it like growing up in Melbourne, Pat? Well, it was normal for me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you was, don't know anything else, I know. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, Dad was, um, he was, uh, had an up and coming law practice. Um, wow. he, yeah, my my mum was the, well, I was uh, one, of, one of six, so my three older. Brother, two older brothers and sister. It's your mum, Dorothy, yeah? Yeah. Uh, they spent most of their time, they're older than me, so they were running around. They were teenagers and just over there, so they were, they were making their own life. So I had uh, a younger brother and sister who were with me all the time. Uh, I think that your, your mum and dad, um, it was a second go-round, at least for, for your mum, is that mm, right? That's and right. They met in, in, in pretty amazing circumstances. Well, yeah, my, my mum had some uh, issues, uh, d- divorce issues, really, and Dad was pretty much the divorce lawyer. So He was representing her in the divorce case. That, he, he, that is yeah. lazy, though, isn't it? That is a very lazy way to find a wife. He said, uh, oh, I fancy this girl. There you go. Yeah, And, uh, yeah, so it was, which was pretty rare there to, to sort of take on, and I, I said this, my, my father's no longer with us, but uh, one, of the, one of the things back then in the in the 60s was to, to yeah, Amer- American divorcee with three women three three kids yeah. to take on that it was, it was pretty something he was a pretty special dad you know it's pretty, pretty pretty special guy so uh um, it's, it was an interesting household, that's for sure. Full uh, of sport, though. Okay, well, come on to the sport in just a second. I mean, obviously, for those of us in Britain, because of American, t- uh, t- uh, sorry, Australian TV shows, you know, like Skippy and things like that, we think that all young mm. American, oh, sorry, I keep saying it, young Australian kids grow up in the outback and in, 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 in the sunshine yeah. running around in hills. But, of course, Melbourne's a big city. No, I was more like Neighbours, actually. I lived okay. oh, yeah, only a few suburbs away from <laughs> Neighbours, a, right. a show which I can proudly say I've never seen. Um, I've never seen a full episode of Neighbours. Well, I mean, you both said, well done. <laughs> but, uh, so, you know, people who have seen Neighbours uh, will get, get an idea of the, the sort of the houses and whatever. So I'm, I was a few, a few suburbs away from there, and that's sort of where uh, tennis clubs were pretty basic, standard, you know, not much of a clubhouse. Not that dissimilar from what we have here, but the the, um, the weather, of course, made that we could play all, all year and you, play in... You, you say there was time. a sporty house. Is that because I think your dad was a, a sportsman, Yeah. Yeah, as dad well was a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. He uh, well, he, I suppose his claim to fame was that he was the uh, high school uh, fifteen hundred meter champion, and he's also an Aussie rules player. So, mm-hmm. what professional back in those days in the fifties was you know I don't know how many shillings it was to to play for a, for a, for a, for a week or whatever, but he played for quite a few years and um, in the one of the teams called uh, Hawthorne. 
which is... Well, you uh, say one of the teams. It, it, it's one of the really big teams, isn't it's, it? Yeah, it's now one of the big teams, yeah. Oh. Back then, it was very, very small. A very working class, small sort of club. Of course, I didn't really know Hawthorne and Essendon. For some reason, those names are stuck in my mind. Yeah, well, yeah. there you go. Yeah, they're two, two of the biggest, two yeah. or three biggest clubs. Probably. Well, four now they've got... It, Ponic, who's number St Kilda? St Kilda, yeah. yeah. They're, oh, he's uh, they're, doing there it. There you go. Yeah, yeah. he's doing that's, it. Well, that's Shane Warne's favourite team, you see. It's Warney's favourite team. He, he fancied himself as an Aussie rules footballer. A <laughs> little bit... Um, yeah. How can I say? Um, Overdeveloped, team. perhaps, because they're big, tall, rangy people now. Aren't well, they? they can be anything, really. Yeah. Aussie rules can be anything. You've got uh, you got the tall guys; they're a bit like lineouts in in the union. And you know, it's, it's you guys, guys who you know get grab the ball, tap the ball down, and you got the quick guys that are running around, and then you got the big strong guys. So you have. Uh, you still like it? You used to mainly think you played a lot when you were young. Yeah. Yeah, it's my favourite sport, and it's still my favourite sport. You know, I was busy watching the the replay, uh, you know, on, on the internet last night of of last week's game. Um, the Hawks playing, so um, yeah, it's my absolutely my favourite sport. I mean, I, I did play all sorts all sorts of sports. I mean, I, I grew up playing, you know, all everything from rug from uh, not rugby, not rugby actually, no. um, not soccer. No. Uh, so she <laughs> like, knows sports. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I played lots of cricket, uh, lots of hockey, field hockey. I played basketball, athletes, ath- athletics, ath- yeah. uh, lots of athletics as well. Um, what did you, what did you end school. up with a, a tennis racket in your hand then? How, how did you become specialising in tennis? Um, bit of a round roundabout way, really. Mum and Dad played tennis; they played socially. And uh, as I said, I was trying all sorts of sports. I had a great school that did did all the all the sports. Um, and I got some tennis lessons, just like any other kid. And I played played a little bit. And and I think the main thing was when we moved home, we moved to sort of the outskirts of Melbourne. Um, we were more in in town, and we moved outskirts. And we found, and, and the first day of school, I didn't I didn't know anybody. The first day of high school. Uh, except for one kid, and I knew him because I was in the tennis tournaments, and he was the best kid in the in the in the state. He and this other kid were the two best kids in the state. And I went up to him and I said hi, you know, and he recognised me. Hi, how are you going? Blah blah. But we had a little bit of a chat, and I said, where do you, you know, I've just got to move this area. Where do you play? He says, oh, this coach Ian Barclay is is great. He's just down the road here. And I said, oh, okay, I'm going to go there, and. That was that was the difference. And Ian stayed with you for a long, long, long time. time. He had national coach here as well. Actually, I'm, so, I'm sorry to say this. There was a time, and it isn't now, when Australia was like the natural home of tennis. Mm. Before you, um, and yeah. when I was growing up, and we've got a few years on you, there was Laver and Newcomb sure. and Rosewall. You could probably give me 10 more names. Yeah. Australia just just oozed tennis at the time, didn't it? Were, I mean, right. were, were these the people who inspired you? Not not directly, actually. No. Um, in a way, you know, somebody like Margaret Court, for instance, who is, who's won more Grand Slams than anybody. She's won... I'm right in saying 62 or is it 66 Grand Slams, which is way more than anybody else. Uh, Martina Navratilova's got 50 or something, and or 40. Um, uh, but and you know she was the sort of player I used to watch. My dad used to say, "Oh, look at there's Margaret Court, and look at her so elegant." And I used to watch her backhand, slice backhand. I think, "Oh, I'll copy that." But you know, I heard the stories. I sort of grew up just as, as we said, just a little bit after that. And yes. So I was watching Borg, Connors. Um, yeah, McEnroe was another. Those okay. were sort of, sort of three guys that I sort of could see, and I could actually get to see, watch them live, and say, "Okay, I'm going to sort of model myself a bit around those." Those, but you know, of course, with all the names of you know, you know Rosewall, Labour, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It just... you, you know, you're part of a tradition, then. Yeah, of course, there's. Mm. You're very quickly a very, very good junior player. I mean, up to the point where we're going to talk here about about. about winning the junior titles at the Grand Slams and um, and in fact being the youngest player ever involved in a Davis Cup final. Um, did it all come very easily to you? 
Um, it it flowed quickly, yeah, uh, but I, I wouldn't say it became became easy. I think it's interesting how um, uh, me now as a coach looking at the young players and the players that start tennis. I mean, I started at tennis at about nine, which is you'd regard as quite old. Now I say to kids, oh, I started at nine. They go, really? Oh, wow, that's old. Because they're, they're starting at five and six, are they're they? They're starting five and six. They're playing lots of tournaments at the time. They're nine and ten. And, and uh, by the time, like for instance, my son... One of my sons who wants to play a tennis player. He said to me a few years ago. He's pretty now, good, I understand. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a good player, and, and he, he said to me at the age of eleven and twelve, "Oh, Dad, I want to be a tennis player." And I said, "Well, t- uh, you know," so I said, "Son, Jet, if you want to, you, okay, but it's, you're kind of behind the, the behind the, the the ball now, you know, at the age of twelve. Um, but what I realized, well, first of all, the wooden rackets, those damn things were so heavy you couldn't, couldn't even lift them. <laughs> you had to be a decent size. <laughs> so you had to be at least eight, nine, or ten to be able to lift those. But I, I did start a little late. But what I did do is became a, a great athlete. I became a good athlete. I played all the sports. So I had this hand-eye coordination, balance, et cetera, et cetera. So once I got stuck into more in the tennis, I picked it up very quickly. And I, I, I leapfrogged a lot of the kids. And it was just a matter of getting out there and playing, getting the technique right, which is, I think, is the number one thing for for any 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 young athletes to get the technique right, and this is where so many tennis associations fall down these days. And they don't, they get out there, and hit lots of balls, and they don't focus on the technique. When you get to 16, 17, you got a bad technique, you might as well. And you want to be a champion, forget about it. Just go and go and start it. Go and look for something somewhere else. And, and I I don't know how you what kind of development program you're in, but I know it's here that you know by the time you're 13, you're already leaving the country to go and get better standards playing in mm. in, in Europe and places like that. Well, we had uh, had this went to this coach Ian Barclay, and Ian had uh, he had four of the top kids in the country, and uh, there was one other kid that was from Canberra, Wally Masur, who became on the uh, on the tour. He Big was chum the, of yours, I think, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah Wally's yeah. a great. And we we were basically uh, the, Wally was a couple of years old. He was the only kid I couldn't beat, and I was pretty equal with my other my other teammate that Ian Ian coached. Uh, and had two girls that were at the top of the country. We had we were almost nobody to, else to, to, to play. We had to go overseas, but we didn't have the tennis association. Didn't have junior teams that sent that, that, that they funded and sent overseas. So we were, were sort of stuck. And my father got together with with Ian, and um, they went and had a businessman who went, went approached a few banks and a few people, and they raised enough money to send us on two six week trips over two years. And the first year we went over, we, we arrived in, uh, Ian had it all lined up. He said, uh, we're going to go to Italy. That's where all the junior champions had played this big tournament in Milan. And, and we arrived there in this beautiful club. And uh, there was, you know, we looked on the on the board there, the winners. There was Bjorn Borg, Ivan Lendl, uh, Martina Navratilova, uh, Mandelikova. The sort of list went on and on. And we sort of, whoa, wow, this is the, this the under 16s, you see. Yeah. And, and we thought, wow, this is the place to be. The very first day, myself and Mark, Mark Hartnett, who's my partner, uh, we walked, we hit on, we hit on the court. And we had to hit this with this Swedish kid, and we're hitting the ball up and down. And we knew we were going to be out, a bit out of our depth, but mm-hmm. you know, and we hit the ball up and down. This kid did not miss a ball for 20 minutes, and we, we he literally did not miss it up and down, up and down. There was two of us down one end, one him down the other end. So we were sort of running him around. We sort of looked at each other and went, "Oh my goodness, we're in real trouble here." Um, as it turned out, that was Mats Villander. So you didn't feel so was, bad. Eight <laughs> years later, you didn't it, feel quite it, so bad. He became world number one yeah. and uh, has won uh, great eleven player, grand course, slams. Great, great player. Yeah. But we thought they're all like that. Yeah. You know, we thought, "Oh my goodness, this is just some random kid." And uh, <laughs> so we didn't do very well the first year, but we had the money to come back the next year, and we came back. We won that title. We won that championships. It was a team and individual thing. 
Um, and then the following year, I, I, I had a chance to to, uh, to come back and win it again. And then I got, the, and then they said, well, you want to come play junior Wimbledon? That would and be 1981. Yeah, you're probably right. 81 or 82, a few years ago. Think, yeah. Maybe 82. It's, All right. Uh, well, uh, uh, we, we, my my researcher is one of the most assiduous people on the planet. But uh, tell but, us about tell us about the, the first time you played at Wimbledon. Well, Wimbledon was this mysterious place. Uh, it was a place that we'd heard about that, you know, the the players used to get on a boat and travel across and all our legends and uh, it'd take forever to get there and stayed over for months and try and play at Wimbledon and, and then Roland Garros. But it was we knew there was a club. Uh, you know, walking in there, it was and being taken in there by the team, by the team coach. And uh, by that, at that stage, we, after a couple of years, we had, they, was start, they were starting to send teams overseas because of our success and uh, sending some of the older boys. So... There I was sort of walking into Wimbledon for the first time and, uh, you know, it was just what a great experience. I mean, I was always pretty hot-headed um, and uh, pretty fiery. And uh, you know, when I went say. there, I was warned, listen, you're at Wimbledon now, mate. <laughs> you know, keep your mouth shut, behave properly and you'll get somewhere. And that was actually good good words of advice for me because I did keep my mouth shut. I did stay focused and, and I played well. And the first year I ended up getting to the final. Yeah, you, you, beat, you beat Henri Leconte on the way. Who was a great well, player? Actually, Henri Default, he twisted his ankle, and and uh, <laughs> I'm trying to pick you up here. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he was the, probably the best player in the in the tournament, and, and I but I got through, and I had to play this American guy who I thought I was going to beat, and and I lost to him. He played a great match, Matt Anger, Matt Anger, and uh, he played on the tour for quite a few years after that. Never did any great success, but um, that was a real wake-up call to me. You know, obviously a great experience, and uh, you know, blew the opportunity to to, what, to win. Just but. overconfidence, you think? Um, yeah, possibly. I mean, it was a long time ago, but yeah. I, I just know that I, sh- I, I believed I should have won, and, and he played a great match, and, and it was too good. And uh, there you go. That, that, that's what happens. But I, I came back the next year and the opportunity to... Well, by to the win. end of 81, and it is 81, Pat, I'm telling you, um, you were the world number one in the juniors, and, of course, in 82, you, you were really um, cr- cracking along. You, uh, you, you, I think you, you won Wimbledon, didn't you? I won the juniors at Wimbledon, yeah. yeah. So I came back, and that was the first time I'd really sort of played under under pressure because here I was coming back into the final and playing a Swedish guy, uh, Sundstrom was his name, and there was a lot of pressure on me to win that, and I was uh, you know down a break in the third set, and I thought, oh, no, I'm going to be, you know, if I lose this, I'm going to be branded as a loser. And um, there was, you know, there was a lot of pressure, and I, I toughed it out. And um, so I, I wound up winning the Wimbledon, and went to the U.S. Open, won the U.S. Open juniors, and and um, I don't need to ask you if you can remember who you beat in the final in in, in the U.S. Yeah, Guy Forge. Yeah. I remember that because Guy's one of my good mates. Um, and of course, I remind him of that all the time. Yeah, uh, fair enough. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? No, That's what mates are for, actually yeah. beating, and then say to remind them the whole time. No, I don't really, but uh, he. he but, yeah, so then I was basically it was the next big step up was to play, you know, the the Well, you the turned professional players. then, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sorry we're rushing through this, but there's so much to get through. And of course, mm. um in 1983, really, I mean, quite an extraordinary experience for you. Talk to me about the Davis Cup. And I mean, first of all, let's remind so in this country because we we're in like European or Pan-African group number 17, <laughs> we we kind of pretend the Davis Cup isn't a big deal. Yeah. The Davis Cup is a big deal, isn't it? It is a big it's a huge deal. Yeah. I mean, it I is it, it's it's the it's the biggest nations competition of of the, of the year and and as I said, because Britain aren't doing particularly well in it. That, particularly? Uh, yeah, for many, many years. In actual fact, I think Jeremy Bates was in the last team that actually won a world group match, which is absolutely shocking. It's a scandal, isn't it? It really Given is. Given how much money we pour into tennis in this country, that is a scandal, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, you had great players too. You had Henman and Rosetsky and you got doubles team, and yet they never won a match either, which is it's weird. But anyway... Um, 
Davis Cup is huge in, in Australia. It's huge in America. It's huge in France. And it's huge just about everywhere. South it American actually is, countries love it. Oh, absolutely. Argentina's never won it. They're trying desperately to win it, and they sell out 16,000-seat stadium every single time. They've they got another chance to win it again this year. But playing, yeah, playing Davis Cup, and, of course, the first, my first match was against Great Britain, and it was uh, John Lloyd. Um and uh, I'd done very well. I won a tour event in Australia on the grass and then it followed on from there that they stayed on the on the grass to play the first Davis Cup match against Lloydie. And I barely got through that match. I was pretty nervous and Lloydie played way better than I thought he would. And uh, But I ended up managing to get through through that one. Uh, well, and, let, uh, let, let, me yeah. let me fast forward to, uh, to, to the final of the Davis Cup in 1983 um, against a, a, a very, very, I mean, yourself, um, the Australian team's managed by Neil Fraser, um, John Fitzgerald, Paul McNamee, Paul, Mark Edmondson and yourself against a very powerful Swedish team, Anders Jared, Joachim Nystrom, Volander himself and Hans Simonsen. Um, and you're the youngest player ever to play in a Davis Cup final mm. and you have to win your matches. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, we, we, we figured that we wouldn't beat uh, Villander. At that stage, he was a Grand Slam champion and, and one of the top players in the world. We had to go for the number the, the other singles guy, who, who had Joachim Nistrom, and, uh, and try and win the doubles. They had a very... Yared and Simonson were one of the top doubles teams in the world, and we earmarked to beat... To beat uh, 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 God, Nistrom, sorry. Yeah. Then the singles. And um, Fitzy went out there and did that, and it was my turn on the last day to do it. You know, the boys won the doubles, and my turn... Time to do it, and and so you're 18 years of age, and this is the deciding rubber in the Davis Cup. Yes, uh, traumatic. I think, <laughs> in actual fact, years years later, and I, I mentioned this at some stage. Years later, I, I had some actually tra- I had some trauma therapy um, just for fun, really. It was almost for fun, and this match. Well, come this back match to trauma therapy for fun in a minute. Just speak. <laughs> well, it was not to give you trauma. It was the trauma for the recovery from from from, uh, from go therapy. On, go on. And uh, anyway, the therapy was like, yeah, bring up anything that ca- that would, is actually traumatic. And and Adam surprised this Davis go walking onto the centre court and and preparing for that came up as as one of the big big trauma trauma in my life. I haven't had many traumas in my life, but this this thing came up and and it was it was it was absolutely nerve wracking to walk out there in my hometown, full stadium, everybody expecting me to win uh, against a, a guy that was uh, you know much higher ranked than me and and. But I end up. The, I, the court I, was very, very fast grass court, and that suited me down to the ground. I'm not a I'm not a professional tennis um, uh, commentator, but I think um, in the last two two sets, you can say you you smashed him. He won two points in the line, final twenty. You won six one six one those last two sets. Did I? You did. You won six four six one six one. He won pretty... two points in the last twenty. I, mean, I didn't know that. You won going away, as they say in racing. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I, I mean, can you try and think back? I mean, I don't want to do regression therapy as well as trauma <laughs> therapy. You're 18 years of age. You are on your home court, and you've won the biggest tournament in team tennis. How did you feel? Well, it was for me. It was you know obviously it was a great thrill, but it was a team effort. You know we've always felt that in tennis you don't have you know you don't have uh, much many team. You play doubles, of course, but you really as a nation you don't you do it very very rarely. And if you're lucky, you get through a couple of Davis Cups a, a year. But so you know, and we, of course I grew up all about team sports really and um so this was our time and i think that's why australian in, in general do really well in in uh, the davis cup we do pretty well because we love our team sports and we we heart and soul into it even if we win or not we certainly put our heart and soul into it a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend 
but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And there you are, living the life of... Uh a professional tennis player. I have to say, partly, I guess, because of your personality, we know about the rock band and all the rest of it. Um, and sometimes you look like sometimes you come straight off the beach as well, uh, if you don't mind me saying. Um, it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking he's one of those tennis players that lives like a rock star. Was that true? Uh, no, but there was a lot of rock, rock, rock stuff around me. I mean, it was my, my music is my favourite uh, thing. And, and the guys. We'll talk that about were... that later, I hope, yeah. Yeah, the the guys that were on the tour then all loved their music. And McEnroe loved his music. Vitas Gerolitis. Uh, McEnroe ended up marrying a musician, didn't he? Yes, he yeah. did. Yeah. Uh, and and it was it was that it was that era, I suppose, that the the guys used to travel with guitars. They didn't really travel with coaches and trainers and stringers and managers like they do now. They train they travel by themselves or maybe with a coach. And I, I was lucky enough to have that coach that I grew up with, Ian Barclay, starting to travel with me. And um, which was pretty rare, and it's usually three guys or four guys in a, in a national team with, with one coach, and so everybody, a lot of a lot of people had guitars, and um, you know we and we went to we went to concerts. The concerts were out. We'd go to the concerts. It, it would be very very tough tennis. It's not what it's, it was, not professional at all. Not a hobby. Hard training, but yeah. the ten, training would be. But the sort of slightly the old school training. It would be running, 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 lots of hours on the court. I mean, hours after hours, and uh, the gym work was just starting to come in then. Uh, but it'd be you know typical sort of boxing stuff: skipping, 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 push-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, you know, jumps, burpees, all that sort of stuff. Loads and loads of that sort of stuff, and uh, you know, four hundred running track around you go. But then at the end of the day, you sort of sit down and you go to the lobby of the hotel, and there'd be a bunch of guys. You sit down with them, and then you say, "Hey, there's a concert or there's a club. If you lost your match, oh, let's go out to the nightclub. Let's have one night, let our hair down, and and you do that, and then wake up the next morning if you had a hangover a night, and you'd be out there training four hours a day." But, I am so glad that it is true, and when you weren't just uh, sitting in your hotel room waiting for the next training session, I'm pleased. No, no, no. talk <laughs> to me. <laughs> well, we'll talk about it. Well, you got yourself. Into, into some lifestyle problems later on, which I think we'll get into. Um, not unassociated with a rock lifestyle, shall we say. Um, but by 1984, you really are becoming a top player. Tell us about, I mean, you reached the semi-final at Wimbledon, um, got to the final of the doubles at Wimbledon, you got to the semi-final at the US Open. I mean, you really are a top player by this stage, aren't you? 
Well, I was starting to push the barrier. That were my breakthrough tournaments. I mean, getting through the semi-final of Wimbledon was just huge for me. Um, and uh, I mean, you, you know, beat Villander on the way for a start. I beat Villander on the way. Um, I uh, and then I, I was playing playing McEnroe, but I had a great doubles player and, and it made a person, Paul McNamee, who's one of the super Macs who'd who'd won doubles. Great Wimbledon doubles, and they'd beaten McEnroe and Fleming, and he was my doubles partner. Uh, Peter had Peter, one of them, he's had a knee knee reconstruction, so he was out for for a while. And and Paul was older. He took me under his wing. Uh, you know, he made me a, a great professional, made me a very good doubles player. I was a good junior doubles player, but um, so you know, I had a good a good team around me. I understood then about uh, having a good team. I was playing good singles. Paul and I got to the final of Wimbledon doubles and we lost to McEnroe and Fleming in, in five sets and uh, um, in many ways that was was a huge relief because I was well, here I was having tennis had just almost dropped off the map completely in Australia and um, is that right yeah we had, we had I mean we did okay in the Davis Cup but we didn't really have any Wimbledon champions from, from since Newcomb which was you know sort of 15 years before mm-hmm. that sort of stuff and and uh, though we did still did well in Davis Cup, we we didn't have any you know potential singles champions, and everybody was looking at me, and and you know I felt a lot of pressure as a 19 year old for that that to happen, and, and you're winning the Davis Cup, of course, and they said, wow, he's ready now, and then I broke through, so that that winning getting this winning those matches at Wimbledon in '84, getting through the semi final was was huge relief for me more than anything, really. People would get off my shoulders, okay, now I'm sort of oh, I was happy with that. I said I've proven. That I'm a good player. Okay, now just get off my back and let me do the rest of it. You know, let me let me be as good as I could possibly be. In in both the, the semi-final, the singles, and as you've mentioned there, the final doubles. The person who beats you, uh, half of the doubles team, is John McEnroe. Yeah. Um, let me ask the, you a straight in, question: Best play you ever played? Uh one of I don't. Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no doubt. Some of the shots he's he's he hits is incredible. But the, the thing that I I remember the first time I actually ever hit with him was was um, walking on in singles of walking onto the court in that on the center court there and the first few shots that he hit in the warm-up just flew off his racket so fast he's a very loose strung racket so the ball would trampoline it was like it's like a trampoline of mm-hmm. a, ra- mm-hmm. a racket so if you loose your string it the more you fly off the ball would fly off and he's got very short swings as you know McEnroe's always got these little brushing sh- swings and his serve was really weird he's he, he you know he almost served around a corner cuz he, st- he stood so side on so many things that I'd never seen before and I was shocked by how fast the ball came from such little movement and uh, look I played uh, I played pretty well I was absolutely exhausted by that stage and and uh, I thought that's that you know I, did well in the first set, lost in a tiebreaker, and then I, I fell away after that. But uh, you know, I thought, you know, I can, I can, you know, once you play those guys, you think I, I can get there. You know, I can play against these guys. Just give me a little bit of time. And if you uh, if you ran into one great player in the form of McEnroe at, at Wimbledon, you also reached the semi final of the U.S. Open, where you run you run slap bang into another great one in Ivan Lendl. But that was an amazing yeah. match, wasn't it? That yeah. Semi-final. Well, that was when they played. I got through this. I was playing. I was playing playing the tennis in my life. I was on the hard court. It was a quick hard courts back then, and my game just started to. It all. It all. Everything started. I played. Everything was just clicking. It was one of those times. Where I'm relaxed. I've got the weight off my shoulders. I've got through Wimbledon semi-final. People aren't pressuring me now, um, and I just went out there and, and just played my game. And and I very much copied. I, I watched McEnroe play um you know in some of the junior tournaments when i was playing the junior 
when I was the junior, he was in the senior, and I said, that's the sort of style I want to play. I want to play like that against McEnroe, uh, like McEnroe mm -hmm. against the other players. And I was developing that attacking st style of play. And there I was in the semi-final against Ivan Lendl, and I thought, well, I'm just going to play, you know, exact attack all the time like McEnroe did. Obviously, I wasn't as good as McEnroe then. But um, we played, as it turned out, well, it's called Super Saturday. Of course, they play the semi-final on the Saturday. It's a very and, famous day in tennis history, isn't it? Yeah. And then, and then they play the sem and then they play the, the the final on Sunday, which is no longer going to happen. It stopped from this year. It's it's actually stopped uh, now at the US Open, but for many years. And they did that for TV. They wanted the CBS, whoever they, whoever it was, and the main network wanted. Okay, we're paying a lot of money. We want the final. On the, want, we want the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. None of this Friday stuff during the weekdays. We want everything on there, and they put, put played, put millions of dollars into it, which was not fair for the players. So there we were. As it turned out, we had a, the men's thirty-five was started off the day with Newcomb, uh, with Stan Smith beating John Newcomb in, in three sets. Then we had myself play Ivan Lendl seven-six in the fifth, and I had uh, had a match point um, and played just fantastic tennis. Um, then there was, there was also the, the women's final, which uh, Martina Navratilova played. Beat Chris Everett seven five in the seven six in the in the third, and then it followed up by McEnroe beating Connors uh, seven five in the fifth. It was something like twelve hours of non-stop tennis for one ticket. And All at the very <laughs> highest level as well. Yeah, and then they say that that was Super Saturday. Well, yeah. you know what? You lost that semi-final to Ivan Lendl, but my guess is that uh, he left a lot of himself on the court because didn't McEnroe absolutely destroy him yeah. in the final? Well, it's funny because McEnroe later he said to me, he said, oh, look, "I've got to thank you for putting for, for that Lendl." He said, "I walked in after playing Connors because he played after court. He didn't finish till like midnight." And you play in the early evening the next day. So he said, I, McEnroe said, I walked in the locker room and I was my body was killing me. And, of course, McEnroe and Lendl hated each other. Actually, McEnroe and Connors hated... Actually, everybody in McEnroe hated each other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Did you hate him? No, no, I got over right. <laughs> uh, I've had my moments, so. Um, but he was, of course, on the other far side of the locker room. And he said he, he was putting his... He was just down in there saying, oh, my goodness, I've got to play Lendl. Now, he's a machine. You know, he was the sort of Eastern block uh, check player who's super tough and he said he looked down the other end he saw Lendl he couldn't touch his toes he, he couldn't pick up his bag and he said oh I've got a chance here this guy's feeling as bad as I, I am and so uh, McEnroe's game he attacked and he pushed the pushed him around he said Lendl was just dead um, said, the you also didn't get, didn't get any. He didn't get a check or anything. I don't think he got bought me a dinner, McEnroe, for that. No, you, 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 you got a nice fine from the authorities, though, for a shy oh, temper at the end of the game. Well, it's, allegedly, I wanted to. I threw my. I was so happy that I actually I played really well. I said a match of my life, and uh, at the end of the match, there was a fan who was cheering for me the whole time, and I threw my racket about five rows up. Well, maybe a bit, maybe it was ten rows. It wasn't very many anyway. This is your story, Mister Cash, and you're sticking to it, yeah? It's absolutely the truth. <laughs> uh, and uh, I threw it to the to the guy. He grabbed it. He was very happy, and uh, that was it. But they the authorities thought that I threw my racket in anger into the crowd. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And it was after the match. We'd done our interviews. I tossed myself as I have done my whole career. Tossed my headbands, wristbands, whatever. Sure. So there I get the, I get this fine. So that was sort of my that was a, the beginning of my hate hate relationship with uh, tennis authorities, I should say. Well, we'll talk about some more <laughs> in a little while. Is Pat, having had the the glorious years of '84 and more glory years to come as well, um, then of course the scourge of all professional sportsmen, the big injuries start to happen. Mm. Back, yeah. In your case, a, a terrible back injury, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I struggled with most of 85 with a, with a back problem of some sort. And uh, it got diagnosed as a, the bulging disc, um, herniated disc, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and, and then I went into, I, I ended up playing through quite a lot of it and actually got to the final of uh, Wimbledon 
doubles, uh, as as you mentioned. Yeah. But I realised that I needed some, you know, needed some treatment. And I, and, I mean, you were playing. Uh, it's like, like many sports people, you're play, playing through pain, and they're perhaps not playing at your very best. I I've got here a piece of research that a, a female commentator, a German woman called Claudia Kilsch, <laughs> She said on television that she could beat you the way you were playing. Yeah, yeah. Well, she probably could have actually. And uh, <laughs> I got to be honest, I wasn't I wasn't in great form then. That was just prior to the French Open, which I'm not great on the clay anyway. And it takes me a few weeks to go and with an injury and not much practice i was pretty uh, i was pretty terrible um it's a pretty mean thing to say though yeah well that's yeah. whatever yeah. you're probably right i was playing yeah. pretty terrible <laughs> that day i remember i mean remember that match but uh um yeah look i mean what are you going to do about injuries you just got to you got to knuckle down and get them and get them right so uh i had this what's then was reasonably experimental um, i was going to say you, you you actually went down a quite an unusual road for, for that time well, it was it, what it is was an injection as opposed to actual surgery. Well, they regarded it as surgery. It's injected uh, papaya extract, a papaya seed extract, which is known to dry up the disc a little bit, and so they would, it would dry up that bulge that was on the nerve. So they under uh, under the microscope, uh, I was under X-ray. They they uh, I was awake for it, and they sort of like so they could see this TV screen up there. So it was not that. It was reasonably mod, and I uh, would look to see where they stuck the needle, and they could uh, put it right in the disc. And, and there I was uh, in hospital for a few days, and and I was you know basically out for for quite a while. But it was, it was about then it's 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 uh, that you realise you know I've got to be a lot fitter and a lot stronger and and, and better. And and not only that, but um, my uh, my girlfriend got pregnant, and so I had a son on the way. And there I was at the age of twenty. Um, not sure really where I was going with but lots of lots lots of stuff lots of going on, lots of time, stuff yeah. going on. Um, so I was ordered to sort of lie on the beach, and that would help uh, that would help the disc and whatever. But then it was about then that I realised, okay, when I get better, I'm going to really focus and make myself so much stronger. And that isn't was, it funny uh, how I mean, you're sat there in that chair. I've done a hundred plus of these programs. I would say one in four of them, at some stage, a sportsman or sportswoman has had an injury that's made them suddenly appreciate mm. what they're trying to do and they've come back much more determined and I think they, the God-given gifts get taken away for a couple of months yeah. and it really focuses attention I think yeah no absolutely right and, and but you also you know you also realize at the age of 20 that I had more more to do and and that I had a son to, to take care of and so there's a lot of motivating factors no doubts about that well um it, come 1986 you must have been better um, because again Australia uh, win the Davis Cup. I won't spoil the surprise for them. They did win the Davis Cup. Um, mm. Again, they played Sweden in the final. You played Stefan Edberg in the first game of the final. Do you remember the, the match? Because mm. it's quite extraordinary looking at it here. Yeah, different. They yeah, different scoring system then. Of course, they had the advantage sets back then. And then they, yeah. and the advantage sets, what you do is you have a break after the third set. Um, of course, best of five sets. It was two sets to one. Oh, with three sets to love, of course you'd be walking, shaking hands. But uh, two sets to one, you would go in and have a have a ten minute break in the locker room and re, re, you know have a shower, or whatever. Because the extended sets, um, yeah, my my first set was thirteen eleven, and the second yeah. set was thirteen eleven. So yeah. the first two sets took you know three hours, three and a bit Incredible. hours. Incredible. So that's that's the way it goes. And it was one of those you know nip and tuck matches, of course, two serve and volleys, fast centre court at uh, Australian Open. And uh, at that's this stage, I'm I have got myself superbly fit and realise I can last, outlast anybody. Matt Villander was busy getting uh, getting married, so we're quite happy not to see the see the back of him. But 
There was Edberg, who, of course, uh, we know can, can play a decent game. As you say, 13-11, 13-11, 6-4, you beat Stefan Edberg. Mm. Um, and then the, the games go the way they go. And it comes down to you, again, really, to if you win your singles match, uh, sorry, your doubles match, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, the match against Pensforce, Pe- Pernforce, yeah. you're going to win the Davis Cup again. Mm. Um, you must have been fit, because once again, you do it the hard way. He, he gets two sets up on you. Well, I, I, you know, at this stage, I was the number one Aussie, and it was clear before in '83 we were all very even. There was, you know, the, uh, Fitzgerald and myself and McNamee and Edmondson were all around about 40 in the world, 30. And well, at this stage now, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, close to the top 10, around the top 10, and I'm the number one player. So I play this. I take two singles and the doubles. Um, I go in. I beat Edberg. Uh, I sit in the locker room. Next thing you know, we, we're playing this other guy called Pernfors, who was the being the French Open finalist, I figured he was a clay court player. I hadn't seen him play a lot. He had been the most successful ever collegiate player in the U.S., which was a very tough comp, which is a very tough competition. But I regard, I thought, one grass, no chance. Forget about it. But I, I was still in the locker room getting a massage when the, when Paul McNamee came back, having lost to Pernfors, and I took looked to my Davis Cup captain Neil Fraser. I said, Fraser, what happened? And he said, uh, he, I could see in his eyes uh, that he, he said, oh, Paul had a bad day. Boy, it was bad. Don't worry about it. Forget about it. He should have told me, hey, listen, this guy's good. He didn't say anything about that. He said, he should have said, this guy just absolutely killed McNamee. And Macca was a very, very accomplished player. And, and, um, and anyway, we got him out there. So don't worry about that. Focus on the doubles. We won the doubles. Fitzy and I won the doubles. We'd been in the final of Wimbledon. We were, mm-hmm. we were red hot. We were a good, good team. team. Yeah come out the last match uh got to play Pernforce and this guy played like I've never played anybody in my life he was hitting winners everywhere chasing balls down diving winners it was unbelievable and there's a, you know it's it's we're, I'm having a flashback here because we've got center court Australian Open home crowd everybody's expecting me to win and this guy's just smashed me in the first two sets. And uh, to say that I was, it took me by surprise is an understatement. I kind of wish that Fraser had said, listen, this guy's, re- this guy's ready. You better be ready. I thought good serve and volley tennis on a fast grass court. Should be plenty. Should be plenty. Yeah. And I was wrong. And I had to really, really pull my finger out and got very lucky that, that uh, really the best tennis that I played of the whole tie was really in the last set, where it, which I won. But I was in real trouble. Well, it's a second uh, victory for Australia with you in the team uh, in your career, which is fantastic. Um, you got to the final in 80, a few months later. Well, very soon, I think, afterwards. Yeah. The Australian Open, 87, had gone into the new year. Um, you got to the final against Stefan Edberg, and um, you may want to tell us uh, how you lost, but you did lose, which means that you'd got into a kind of place, uh, let's call it the Andy Murray place, if you like, um, where you were uh, you started to, lose, you started to get to a lot of... Um, Grand Slam finals, both in singles and doubles, but you weren't winning them, Pat. Yeah, that's true. I, um, I, w- I think I walked away from that reasonably happy because I'd uh, uh, in the quarterfinals I'd, I'd really damaged my, my my shoulder and beat uh, Yannick Noah. Um, I'd played then I played the semi final against against Lendl, Ivan Lendl, um, and at that stage I could really only serve about. Uh, three-quarter pace at, at my hardest and I beat Lendl in four sets and and I thought I'm pretty happy to be in the final here and playing Edberg it, it same he just smashed me in the first two sets my serve was at that stage my, my arm was just about gone and for half pace and uh, he killed me the first two sets I wore him down I just I just hung in there and got on top of him eventually got on top of him and won this won the third set one that I was leading the fourth set easily um, I was up something like four one five five one or something like that, 
If I, I should have grabbed that set and more, gone into the fifth set with momentum. Unfortunately, my shoulder was gone. I think I served three double faults in a row in the next two games. My arm was dead. I just you lose feeling of it. Um, almost like a dead leg or whatever. And mm-hmm. he got his rhythm back. I ended up winning that set, but he got early break. He got the jump and, and got back in, into the set. So I walked away from that going, you know, I blew it. But, you know, I think if I had, had to look at it fairly, I'd say, you know, I'm pretty lucky to actually get there. And, uh, but it was a, you know, it was a big disappointment. But um, the thing that I had is a lot of grass court practice, a lot of grass court practice over that summer. And of course, there was a nice tournament in the southwest of London that uh, I was looking at. It's got a couple of minutes here, running up to the top of the hour. Um, we will talk more about your your, your musicians' uh, skills later on in the show. Oh, but okay. um, what are your favourite bands, just as a matter of interest, so we can get a, a fix of where we're going with this? Oh, There's no wrong answer. Cla- look, classic classic rock. I mean, really, uh, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest. Mm. Uh, ACDC and so, so rock veering know. towards metal then yeah yeah rock metal yeah I mean I do like my Metallica all the way but I do love my blues Rory Gallagher you oh know, that wow that sort of stuff yeah uh, you know so it's it's a variety but uh, and if you prog rock as well a little bit of this what kind of, of prog rock bands do you like it's there. Of course, it used to be unfashionable. It couldn't be more fashionable again now to say you're a prog rock fan. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. That's Amazing, right. My yeah. Son, well, my son's into these prog rock bands. A band called Coheed and Cambria, who are an American band, who are, who are great. Uh, a guy called Stephen Wilson. I like uh, Porcupine Tree. I don't yeah. know if you know these guys. Of course, keep going. Yeah, Talking yeah. to me now, so, Pat, so as, the, as, as the listeners would say. But it's mainly guitar stuff. I like, yeah. I like the guitar. If you if you could have played... I'm taking Jimi Hendrix out of the equation, because that's yeah. not fair. Eddie if Van you, Halen. Yeah. Is the answer? You've got to play like anybody. Oh. You've played like Van Halen, yeah. I could play Van Halen. I'm still still learning his stuff. He's just he's just something else. He just changed music. He just he changed music. He changed the way the guitar's been played. And uh, Tony Iommi as well has done that from Black Sabbath. The guitarist for Black Sabbath. Well, you know, considering he he's doing that with not the requisite number of fingers as well, he hasn't got ten fingers, has he? Well, so? he got a bit cut off yeah. one of them. But uh, yeah, that's a whole whole new story. But uh, yeah, I think I think probably but there's so many good guitarists now. I mean, Van Halen started all this, and now these guys can just play unbelievable you go to a local pub and you see guys yeah, you can play Van problem, Halen stuff yeah, yeah. and I go whoa and then I sit there with my jaw you know thinking I'm, don't tell me these boy bands are selling out selling out uh, the O2 when these guys are these, down the pubs you can play you got Look, more we're, talent we're, gonna, we're sounding a bit middle aged now but it is, a, <laughs> it is a right nuisance that isn't it you know the, the only record the only music that gets into the charts is for for uh, mannequins yeah. um, singing in an approximation of harmony when there's loads of great great people yeah. out there who never never get that opportunity I mean obviously uh, I Deep presume Purple, I didn't mention Deep Purple Cheap Trick my favourite band the, 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 you, you mentioned um, I, I'm thinking that uh, people at your level of, uh, of sports make a few Bob, have you gone and bought yourself one brilliant special guitar? Um, yeah, Les Paul, Les Paul um, uh, spe- uh, special black one was was a gift from from my wife. who shouldn't really have given it to me at the time, but probably the that was most special one is Tony Iommi's limited guitar with the, the with the pickups that he's got. That just you turn it on and the whole whole room just shakes. We even play a note. It's something nice. else. Oh my god! <laughs> Got the black, the crosses in there. The, yeah. the crosses inlet in in the in, in inlays in the on the neck. Oh yeah, it's it's pretty special. So that's probably my special. Pat, let's talk about 1987 then and the uh, grass yeah. court. The grass court tournament. You said that was coming up. That might suit the way you were playing. Yeah. Um, did you think you were? I mean, you were you were seeded 11 for Wimbledon, so you weren't one of the favourites. No. Well, I think in most tennis people's eyes, I was. I mean, that they were the days where grass courts were were fast. Clay courts were slow, and uh, hard courts were sort of somewhere in the middle. And and if you had, you were a good clay court player or slow court player, you'd do well at the French Open, but you'd 
not, might as well not even bother turning up for the grass courts because they were really quick. And I was a quick court player, so I suppose being seated eleven, you could just about you know cross off about three or four of the players straight away. And I suppose most tennis people would say, you know, had an out, had, had a good chance, and uh, particularly having come off the back of a Davis Cup win on the grass in Australia, Australian Open uh, final uh, on the grass. I had plenty of grass court play, so uh, I, I felt very confident about it. I mean, in the, in the first round, you beat uh, someone who I don't remember anymore, I must say, Marcel Freeman. Then your compatriot, we've heard about, uh, Paul McNamee. Yeah. Michael Schappers, the Dutchman, I think, in the in the third round. And then it's a pretty hard road into the final. Guy Forget, Mats Verlander and Jimmy Connors, one after the other. Mm. That, is, yeah. that is not an easy easy route to the final. No, no, it was, uh, as it turned out, it, it, looking back at it, it was because I didn't lose a set. But um, um, no, I mean, a, a good draw for me, really. I mean, I said, yeah, Villander was, you know, he uh, you know, he could play on all courts, of course. He, he won the Australian Open on the grass, on the, on, at, at, uh, and of course he won the French Open. So he could play on all surfaces. Jimmy Connors was probably just past the use-by date, and he had a couple of really, one very, very famous comeback match against Pernfalls, who we talked yes, about, indeed. who I beat in a comeback. Um, and that was a hot, hot day. Um, and it was over five sets, and he came back from 6-1, 6-1, 4-1 double break and ended up winning the match. Pernfalls lost concentration. Jimmy got, the crowd went nuts. And, and that was a really tricky match for me because here I was playing the veteran who was one of my heroes. And I knew Jimmy People would have... loved him at Wimbledon as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, he's, he's, he's one of the all-time... Le- and, and he used to clown around with the crowd. And, uh, yeah. you know, as soon as I started winning, he used to, you know, mess around with the crowd and try and mess my concentration up. And and so it was really tough to, to finish him off. But, um, you know, getting through that that match, and then, of course, uh, was Yvonne Lendl, who I'd beaten at the Australian Open with a, with a sore shoulder. So... So did you did you think then going into the final again? You know, Lendl he looms over tennis in this era. Um, mm. Or he was a different kind of player. He brought in the fitness training perhaps more than anybody else. He was the first ultra professional, I guess it's fair to say. Yeah. And I must say, or my remembrance of it is that for all you're saying this, he he would we definitely thought you know you're a good player. Lendl is some kind of you know machine. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, he, he got to the final the year before against Becker, and, he, and uh, Boris had gone out early in the tournament, of course, so that was that was any guy that I think thought that I, I uh, would have to play my absolute best and, and have a bit of luck to beat, and uh, he, he went out early in the tournament, so after that, I, I felt really confident. It was a matter of actually getting around and doing you, it. You have a fellow Australian called Pete Doohan, uh, for you, Peter Bob, Doohan. then, for, Peter beat um, Becker, which, of course, was one of those yeah. results, what? Yeah, 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 it's one of those um, uh, you know incredible results. Uh, yeah, it was funny because Peter's coach came to me and said, "Oh, how do you beat Becker?" And I said, "Oh, mate, you, what you got to do is keep the ball down low, you know, mix his, mix him up and attack his second serve." I was just guessing. I was bluffing, you know. I was like, <laughs> I, "I don't really know." I mean, Boris, how do you beat Boris at Wimbledon? He won the last two two tournaments, and and he went out and he did it. And uh, so it was, it was yeah. I was my, my, you know I was I was relieved, but I was, he was the other side of the draw, so I wasn't really focused on it. But here I was against against Lendl and. Um, yeah, my game plan was to make Lendl volley all he could because the court, as I said, the courts were quicker then. You couldn't really stay back. I know Connors was successful staying back of the court, and of course Borg was for for, for many years. But I think uh, in that that tournament there, uh, I don't th- I don't think you could have stayed back. And I think Lendl realised he couldn't stay back. The guys like myself, Becker, Edberg, would have been all over the net all yeah. day. Rush, rush, rush. 
and he couldn't have beaten us that way. His his best way was to serve and volley, but he didn't serve and volley. And this is one of the things that I, I, I should ask him. It's always mystified me now that you know we're older and we can get on all right, is why he didn't serve volley the rest of the year. And he he decided, okay, at Wimbledon time, he'd just become a serve volleyer. It doesn't work like that. I mean, clearly it doesn't work like that. And I always sort of shook my head thinking, okay, he's dedicating, he announced loudly, I'm going to you know, focus on Wimbledon You know, the years after that. I'm going to win Wimbledon yeah. and I'm going to st- come early and play on the grass and get used to it. And but he would never serve volley the rest of the year. I couldn't believe it. I thought, okay, well, gee, he's going to start serve volleying. And, this is and then be we'll tough. all be in trouble, yeah. And we'll all be in trouble. And I'd look, watch him play, and I'd play against him, and he wouldn't serve volley at all, I'm thinking. <laughs> anyway, but he came very close, and that the idea was making volley, making volley. And, and um, you know, once I got over that first tight, first set tiebreaker, I, I, I mean, yeah, you, you won the tiebreak in the first set to give you a 7-6, then 6-2. You won 7-5 in the third. It looks, I mean, it's easy for me to say it, and looking in the history book, it looks like a pretty straightforward victory. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously it's it's a matter of winning the points and the, the right points. I mean, they were, they were very tight, and I was obviously nervous. My first Grand Slam final, uh, first Wimbledon final, and walking out, you know, out from the doors behind the, 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 the one end of the, the court there, the clubhouse end, and... Uh, hearing the roar, uh, I couldn't believe the difference between the semi-finals when I came out with Jimmy, and the final. I mean, the the roar that went around the crowd. It was it was a bit like a Mexican wave because only a certain amount of when the people, players come out the door, only one corner can see it, and yeah. then everybody sort of goes, "Oh, that must be the players!" and everybody starts roaring. It's like a Mexican wave of of cheers, and and I couldn't believe the difference. And uh, yeah, of course, you had to turn around and bow and bow to the royal family. Princess Di was up there, and well. That's fascinating because, of course, that is the formality of Wimbledon, bowing to the royal box and all the rest of it in the white kit. Um, it's different now a little bit. Yeah, and certainly when, anymore, no. when you won, when you won, it was perhaps the most informal celebration in the history, not just of Wimbledon, but of British sport. <laughs> um, when, yeah. And, of course, they all do things now. And one day I'm sure one of these players is going to put on a, a backpack and shoot themselves out of the stadium. Yeah. But when you <laughs> ran up, the, up, climbed up effectively... Um, did you know you were going to do that? Who were you trying to get to? What what got into you? Um, yeah, yeah, everyone I, I remembers it. Everybody, yeah, that's right. It's it's <laughs> it's more famous than the match for sure. Um, it's it, it was one of those things that I I wanted to do. I wanted to say, you know, we we talked earlier about my injuries, um, my you know having a son, uh, you know things that I went through in, in my life, and and uh, it was a sh- oh, I'm only 22, but I'd been through a lot and. It was my way of saying thank you. I really wanted to say thank you to these to the people, and obviously my coach and my, my dad was up there, and my sister and yeah, of course, it was your family wasn't it? My, a lot of my family were there. My mum wasn't, but um, it, it was it was, and I wanted to do that. I wanted to do it. I didn't think much about it the night before. Um, I was sitting back, to trying to relax, watching watching a movie, and, and I said, and the only thing came to my head. I I, I did a lot of visualization. I was a sports psychologist. I was one of the, the first people really to get a a, a team together. And I realized that I needed some help in sports psychology. I used to lose my temper a little bit. I lose focus a bit. So I did a lot of work with, with this guy who was Hugh, Jeff Bond from the Institute of Sport. And he, he used to work at the Olympians. And he was a guy I decided to, to employ part-time. And, and uh, so I had this fitness t- and this team, this fitness team as well. And the visualization was very important. I did a lot of visualization. I visualized everything throughout the whole, uh, what could possibly happen in the next, the next day. Playing well, coming out playing badly, slipping over, whatever, bad line calls, absolutely everything. But I didn't, the only thing I didn't visualize was climbing through the stands. Sure. The only thing I thought about, <laughs> I went, 
uh, the only th- it came into my head. I went, yeah, tomorrow when I win, I'm going to climb up. Yep, that's it. That's uh, all I thought. You know when you do something that energetic, extraordinary, not been seen before, mm. when you finally get up to your to, to the box, did you find yourself with nothing to do? I mean, <laughs> there was no chair for you to sit in, or, or was it just your, uh, your dad or your not, sister? Or... <laughs> yeah, not quite. I did get stuck halfway, which wasn't very very well planned at all. But in those days, they had the, the big standing room area. Remember they used to ring the bell at Wimbledon at twelve thirty, and, and the gates would open, in, yeah. and then people used to run in and 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 run to that spot where there was a big area where you could stand, and Incredible, that was really. the area between the chairs and and the box that I the, the the players' box that I couldn't get over. So eventually I got up there, and I think people enjoyed it, but I couldn't. I didn't, to me to the life of me, I I, I never really. I always, I, I couldn't work out why people had never really celebrated with their team or their parents before. Nobody, oh, not their team, but no, their team of... But uh, they're, they're, they're backers and their, yeah, their, and their, and their, and their family, family, of course. Nobody ever sport yeah. before, other than, you know, on the football field, well, you hug your you know, you know manager what? or whatever. But it, it seemed, Now it seems such a natural thing, it, yeah. um, and you broke the mould there, so well done. Let's, let's get some more memories of that incredible day. Barry Flatman was at the centre court that day and, of course, went on to help you write your autobiography, Uncovered, and Barry joins us on the line now. Hello, Barry. Hello, Danny. Hello, Kashi. Hi, Bezza. <laughs> he's, he's mystified by your arrival, Barry. Yes. Tell, yes. Us, t- tell us your memories of that amazing day on the centre court at Wimbledon. I, I remember it. I remember it as being pretty much one-way traffic. You know, I remember it as being uh, Pat's match from start to finish. And, and, of course, I remember the climb. I think we all just remember the climb. Um, as you rightly said, it, it's not so much the game that you remember. It's what happened after. And um, ever since then, it seems that there's almost uh, uh, directions for the players to, to get up there. Oh, I mean, it's, I oh, it's, it's called the cash route, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen... I remember Serena dancing on the top of uh, of the American tennis booth. That 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 that, that uh, nearly caused a few eruptions. Listen, Barry. The the, the fact of the matter is that because you you rightly say that people remember the climb as much as they remember the match. That's unfair on Pat Cash. How good a player was he? I've got to watch what I say here because I deal with this guy every week. Yeah, he was—he was an excellent player. He was an excellent player that really should have won a lot more than he won. Um, you know, he was—he was around in a, in a very good era, an era that some would argue is as good as today. You know, you had players. He was at the tail end of ball, but you had McEnroe, you had Landor, you had Connors, uh, great names. Um, but he was right up with them, and if it hadn't have been for all the injuries. He would have been remembered in, in in a great quartet in the same way that you know the current quartet Federer, wow. Nadal, Djokovic, and Murray. I think. Well, I don't think you can put it more clearly than that, Barry. And I'm sorry it's been such a brief reacquaintance, uh, Pat. I'm sorry to say, we just have to say goodbye now to Barry. Oh, oh, oh yeah. see, you, see you soon, mate. Okay, well, I'll ring you tomorrow. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I mean, oh, checks in the mail. The cruel, the cruel timing of radio means we have to lose Barry Flatman there. But he was just saying, if it hadn't been for the injuries, then he would have been Pat oh, Cash, I think he was one of the bit generous abs- there, absolutely one of the greats. And you're listening to my sporting life with the aforementioned Pat Cash and me, Danny Kelly, right here on Talk Sport. Um, Pat, having won Wimbledon in '87, and we heard from Barry Flatman how good a player you were there. Um, I guess, just like I suppose we're hoping for Andy Murray, you it would start a run of victories in Grand Slams. Um, injuries are one of the reasons why you didn't, and I guess the best chance you had was the following year when, in your home uh, tournament in Australia, you got to the final again. Yeah, that was the first time the uh, we had the new stadium, the new um, uh, well, it was called. Linders Park back then, but yeah. it was the new new centre with the hard court or rebound ace court, which plays basically like hard court. You're back in Melbourne again, yeah. Back in Melbourne, yeah. Um, 
and uh, yeah, I wanted to prove myself as a not just a grass court player and uh, as a hard court player, and and um, yeah, look, had a had a again another very good tournament. Uh, beat Lendl, who, as, as we knew, as I explained, was definitely better on hard court than he was on grass. Though you can't really say he's he's poor on grass because he got the two Wimbledon finals. But to beat him for me in a semi-final, kind of semi-final yeah. sort of proved that uh, yeah, you know, I can I, I knew I could beat these guys, but it was a, it was a big win to beat Lendl. It was, it was tougher than the beating him on grass. And then to come up against Villander who hadn't had a particularly good year the year before, but um, as it turned out 88, uh, not only did he beat me in that which was uh, a brutal match, 8 uh, eight six in the fifth set. Four and a half hours in Australia, and that's in, in the Australian heat. It's not Wimbledon, yeah. four and a half hours. Well, it wasn't actually hot that day. It was no? windy, and oh, it was a really tricky day. Uh, Conditions-wise, really, really tough. It was one of the toughest matches I've had to play. The matches went up and down, rain delays, backwards and forwards, until they closed the roof, and we finished out the match. And uh, Yeah, that was a real heartbreaker. Um, you know, I lost the final closely the year before against Edberg, and... and um, I think in my heart of hearts, I, I kind of, I'd sort of, you know, when you start your career off as a kid and you're hoping, you know, oh, I'd love to do this, love to do that. And, you know, when, when you re- realistically have a look at it, you go, you know, I think I can win Wimbledon. I want to win Davis Cup for my country and I want to win my home home Grand Slam. And Huge ambitions, close, but you know? a man, you're close. Uh, Absolutely. Cl- so close. And I think my heart of hearts were, you know, I'm, this is just tiring. This is tough work, and I think, to be perfectly honest, I ran out of steam after that, and, and uh, for, for a while, and then, and then injuries k- kicked in. When um, you say you ran out of steam, is that is that a tiredness, physical, or is it a mental tiredness with the game? I, I think a bit of both, but mentally, mentally, I, I was tired. I put a huge effort to come back from injury and and to do well for a few years, and. I really need this six months off or rest or whatever, and you don't you don't get that on the circuit. You just you don't, and um, which which meant that I was playing tournaments when I was less than enthusiastic. And it's one of the things that I mean, we'll talk about the current big four, but it's one of the things about Federer that just it just is bewildering, isn't it? Mm. He he just doesn't get any less competitive. I mean, I don't no. know how he does it. No, look, the these guys had these guys have I suppose bigger shots, more weapons than I had. You know, I had the my my strength was my physical ability to be able to run all day Athleticism, and, and, yeah. and get around the net and put pressure on the guys and and I didn't have hugely powerful shots um, uh, you know I was quick at the net and, and that sort of stuff and that means hard work every single match um, but yeah I, I mean I, I certainly take my hat off there's no doubts you know Federer t- is sensible with his career he takes breaks he does what he's want, does what he wants and has a break here and there we couldn't do that then we used to if you didn't play all these tournaments you get fined and you get you get basically you get sent off, sent out of the circuit. So he, the circuit was he, a bit different back in those he days. He is great that way, Federer, but he's never going to appear anywhere with Tony Iommi's guitar when he's foot on the monitor, <laughs> is he? Let's be honest. <laughs> Probably not. No, it's no. not <laughs> going to happen. Saying. Talk to me as well. I mean, uh, you, 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 the rest of your career, you, mate, you reach the third Davis Cup final, but it is uh, a kind of tapering away. Um, uh, how much was that to do with, as you say, your own mental uh, tiredness with the game, which is, of course, incredibly competitive, and uh, with the physical problem of just injuries that, that were coming to you? Well, um, I think it's fair to say I broke my Achilles, uh, which was uh, nasty, obviously. Um, it's the only injury that I haven't really recovered from. But in, in a crazy way, and, and I've, I've come to realise this throughout, throughout my life, that um, you know these mental issues, really, you, you, physical from mental 
problems um, come physical illnesses and uh, they manifest and and I was just dying I needed a break I was uh, had a young I had two young children at this stage uh, I was in a relationship but I wasn't very happy um, I was playing tennis tournaments I didn't want to play I was doing sponsor things I didn't want to do and boom my Achilles breaks and I'm out for a year and you know, I was like, well, you know, that'll that'll mend, which it didn't properly, as it turned out, because I didn't rehab it properly, because I didn't care. Um, years later, I, my enthusiasm came back, um, but there was a chain of injuries that continued continued through, and and um, I never, you know, I went from one injury to the next, and and after when my enthusiasm did come back, and it really did come back. When was this part? Well, it was you know probably ninety around, probably nineteen ninety so around that time I. Uh, when I came back from my Achilles, I st- was coming back, and then uh, I was in a new relationship, and that was a great relationship. I was enthusiastic, and and uh, relationship with a woman, not not the tennis association. Mm, no, no, quite, no. <laughs> um, and then I really started really enjoying it, and also, you know, I, I was really determined to come back. So I worked really hard, but then went for I did knee surgery. Then I had another back surgery, and I came back, and then I did another knee sur- knee surgery, and then I just. I just kept going on, and I was on for six months, off for six months, on for six months, off. And you know, you can't. It, it, for, you can do that for a couple of times, but it just after a while, it just wears out. And then, uh, and then that was about that time I went. You know, what's the point? You know, and, and I'll just try to enjoy my tennis as, as best as I could, and thought, you know, there's more to life than tennis. I mean, you you you're good enough. By in 1990, when you did try, you won a, a tournament in Hong Kong. Let's uh, let's say that in the rest of the program we're going to be talking about your life outside tennis because I think we want to get a picture of you as a rounded human being. Some of it is pretty harrowing, some of it is is much more uh, inspirational. Um, but just take a moment now to look back on from the teenager who takes up the game um, through to, as you say, when eventually your body just says enough now, Pat. Although you are, of course, very successful in the seniors tour at the moment and keep winning the Wimbledon doubles title, let's be fair. Just look back on your tennis career for me um, about what you achieved and what you feel about it now. Um, well, you know, so I get I went and visited a school a friend a friend of mine has a couple of kids at a school and um, it was a bunch of eight and nine year olds and younger and one of the questions why well, did a little chat uh, and one of the questions was well, how many Grand Slams did you win? I went I won one. And I was almost like, oh. I said, I won one, though. I won one, and I won it in the best era that's ever gone in the game of tennis with the best players, the best personalities. And, uh, you know, I had a very, very short career at the, my peak, you know, if, between injuries, and um, I did pretty well. Davis Cup win, two Grand Slam runners-up, a couple of doubles finals, which were, you know, uh, nip and tuck as well, and, and, and won Wimbledon. So, you know, you look back at that, and you go, oh, that's, you know, that's pretty Pretty good effort, I think. Not bad for. A... And back in Australia, where, as you say, tennis was a religion before when you were coming through. Um, do people? Uh, I mean, you live here in London. We'll talk about that in a second. But uh, are you are you are you big back in your native country, Pat? Uh, a certain age group, yeah. <laughs> I think the young. It's fair to say, young people don't really know me, uh, which is probably the same here. Um, but a certain age, uh, it's 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 quite fascinating. Yeah, how how you can literally people will just stop and drop everything and go. <gasps> That's you, isn't it? Sort of thing. After they look at my earring and realise it's me. Well, you, no, you still look very like yourself. You've still got that big mop of yeah. hair and everything. So, yeah, a slightly but, piratical uh, look. Yeah, I suppose. But then you know, other people would have a clue. So it's it's uh, it's it's quite it's quite amusing at, at times. Um, but uh, yeah, they they know me in Australia, but I, I I probably don't spend as much time as I do here. To be Listen. honest. After your time as a top tennis player. Uh, whatever good things were happening in your life, there was also some bad things happening. You you ended up battling with both drugs and depression. Tell us about that. 
Um, I'd always been depressed. I'd been depressed for a long, long time. Um, I hadn't necessarily enjoyed my tennis. I think the pressure of being the next up-and-coming superstar in Australia, etc., all that sort of stuff, uh, had put a, you know, had weighed itself on my shoulders. Um, a lot of stuff I didn't enjoy. I was in a relationship that wasn't particularly good. My kids were about the only thing that really got me happy. Um, a lot of the time, as explained, coming back from injuries and everything. Um, very, very painful injuries. Uh, was depressing, um, and I think right towards the end of end of my career, there, um, I uh, I started wanting, uh, craving for a bit of fun. Um, and most people say, "Oh, wow, what? What do you mean fun? I mean, hold on, you're an international superstar. You're making millions of dollars. You're running around the world playing tennis in the most beautiful countries in the world." Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true if you look at it like that, but it's not like necessarily like that. No, no, that, that, that's it's, true if you're doing an ordinary job. Uh, that, that seems like fun, but for you... It's, it's yeah. really, really tough work, pushing your body to the absolute limit every single day um, and trying to get that absolute... That trying to make... The, trying to be the best player you can be and not to, and not cut any corners. Uh, it, it takes... A, you know, eventually you go, you know what, I just want a normal life. I want to go out. I know I missed my whole teenage life. I just want to go out and have some fun, and uh, you know, and and I met my wife, Emily. Um, Emily, beautiful woman. Um, she was uh, upbeat, vivacious, social scene, and um, you know, went out and started having fun, drinking probably too much, trying t- trying drugs, and um, you know, uh, really just letting my hair down. Pretty, pretty, pretty simple. Let's 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 separate the two things then: the 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 overindulgence in drinking drugs and the, and the depression. How did you deal with the depression? Or did you deal with the two things together? Uh, I think it's fit. Have well, you dealt with it? You know the depression because it's a, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a con- yeah, it's a it's an ongoing battle. Um, absolutely, there's uh, I spent more money on on therapy and 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 a little bit on rehab. I wouldn't say I was I was a, a, a drug addict. I saw I used that word. Yeah, it's it's, 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 it's a wrong was, word to throw around, isn't it? Cause yeah, it, it, I think I was I was a part time drug user. I mean, it wouldn't be much different than. And people listening here would say, oh, well, you know, occasionally I go out and I party or I smoke a joint or, or whatever it happens to be in the weekend. And I was pretty much like that, um, it, though it did, uh, you know, it did continue for quite a few years. It comes a time where everything starts crashing down around you and it's crashing down around my wife more than anything. And then I realized, uh, wow, do I you mean, to... Do you mean she was involved in the same way or your behavior was was we were, making life different? We were partying her. together. Yeah. You know, it was, we, were, we were a team. We were, we were you know, and, and so we went out. It and sounds great, I have to say, but of course the effect may not be as great as it sounds. It's damaging to our relationship. It's damaging to the kids. I mean, we never partied in front of the kids, no. et cetera, et cetera. But twins, but... Shannon and Jet, yeah? Yeah, Shannon and Jet, uh, great boys, chalk and cheese for twins, can't believe they're even brothers but um, you know I think it's eventually um, you know the the anger and the depression that, that I, I held on to, you know it really affected her and she ended up going in, into a rehab for, for depression, I went and visited her, which is a very famous one in America which a lot of the rock stars go to and whatever mm-hmm. cost a fortune um, Cottonwood, and then, uh, I think, is called, isn't it? Cottonwood, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. And it's uh, you know, I went in there to do this this family, con, con, you know, talking sort of thing, and and I realised, boy, you know, I, I you know, I've never really learned to communicate properly. I've never really learned to deal with any of these anger issues. I've never learned to deal with, 
you know, why do I, you know, ha- have a blowout and I want to, you know, have let my hair down, why, you know, all, all these things and all the pressure. And, and this is where I did this, I've mentioned at the top of the show, did this trauma therapy and realized that, you know, one of the big, the big trauma in my life was actually walking on the center court in front of my home crowd as an 18-year-old having to win the Davis Cup match. You know, it's like going to war. Um, no, it's not like going to war, but if you know what I mean. And uh, sporting war, anyway. And so these things, you know, they take their toll. And, and uh, you know, you throw drugs and whatever in the mix, and it becomes very, very hazy. And, uh, you know, this is something that um, that that I dealt with and, and I continue to deal with, for that matter. And did, did, I mean, of course, the depression, as I understand, is an ongoing battle. Um did Emily recover as well? And what's your relationship like now? We get on great. Yeah, look, uh, I'm very, very healthy, very happy. Um, but as I said, it's a constant, it's a constant work. This is this is something that um, that I have really gone into, and it, it, since since stopping my career, uh, it is really the, the physical and emotional healing, um, and the, also the healing that needs to be done, and the advice that that, that needs to be. Sh- uh, told to some of these young players I, I see myself now as a teacher I mean I really do a tennis teacher of course mainly but a, a teacher in, in life and this is one of these things that I think young people are really really young people and of course athletes with that extra pressure on top of them really um, need to uh, get an understanding about should I say and this is something this is one of my passions my my passions that uh, I do a lot of stuff for charity and you know mate half of that I suppose is wanting to go to heaven which is you sure <laughs> Yeah, that'll be the Catholic guilt. Yeah, that'll but, be the, yeah. Yeah, the Catholic guilt. The Catholic guilt is one of the things I've really had to deal with, um, <laughs> and, and get an understanding about that. But um, beyond that, I think it's uh, it, it's actually just become you know it's being it's part of being a human. And, and well, and listen, you, you were going to talk a little while in the, in the next section of the show about your life now, but just overall, right now, would you say that you're in a good place, happy place? I'm in a very happy place most of the time. Okay. okay. Spoke, spoken like somebody who is dealing with depression. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I, I want to come back to, because we just talked very briefly about, about music. Um, uh, oddly enough, um, lifestyle, everyone has to have a thing um, that, that's not what they do for a living, that they, they, they get great joy and excitement from. Is, is that music for you? Yeah. Oh, you know, my, my kids as well. My kids are grown up now. They're all off... They're all grown up. I'm a grandfather. I mean, you were a grandfather at 44. Yeah, well, I'm going to discover a grandson any minute now, another one, uh, or another grandchild. Um, so it's, you know, one of the, the great pleasures is, is actually, and my girlfriend will probably hate me for this, but I say, you know, babe, I just want to go to the concert, and it was a smaller gig, better the better, and some of these obscure bands that... Last last all Night Ranger and Dan Dan Reed Network and and some of these not normal bands like sure. Muse whatever. You don't want to see them in a seventy five as much as what I love. What is the point of that? If I go to a stadium, I want to see sports. <laughs> Let's be honest. Well, yeah, so I can get up close and babe, I don't want you there. I just want to be in my own space and and uh, and, and listen to my music and. You know, sing the songs and whatever, and and maybe I'll, you know. With, Why with would your other, girlfriend hate you for saying this? Well, because she's not necessarily wanted <laughs> to come oh, to the I, I want to go there by myself. And, and I go you, there, you, people, you, people look at me and they go, oh, Pancakes, what are you doing here? And I say, well, same as you, just rocking out, you yeah. know. <laughs> well, you look around, where's your bodyguards, where's your mates? No, no, I'm, hey, I'm happy being my own. I don't get a lot of own space, own time. So yeah, this is the time in front of the right in front of the right in front of the guitarist where his amp's pointing right at me. And you've, uh, I mean, of course, you're a slightly privileged um, music fan in that uh, you are Pat Cash. I know you're friends with Iron Maiden. Indeed, at one stage, aren't you on stage in excess? 
now. I've had the opportunity to get on stage with some 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 of the guitarists, and over the years. I used to do a lot of charity gigs, and, and ah. all these people used to turn up and uh, very generous with their time. Um, the guys in Iron Maiden never got Jimmy Page. I've done the charity with stuff for him. You and, played and with Jimmy Page? No, I didn't. I didn't. Played a few bits and pieces with Ronnie Wood over the years, but uh, uh, the guys from Deep Purple are very generous as well. It, it's amazing how generous these people really are, and I suppose I'm in a privileged situation where I can. I used to, and not so much. Don't no. really do it anymore. No, I used no. to go, hey, listen, guys. Wimbledon tickets. You can if you come up and uh, uh, yeah. do something for the charity. And, they... yeah. and blackmail them into playing music for you. That exactly. would be exactly. brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely. Why not? Absolutely. Why not? Absolutely. <laughs> Listen. Thank you for talking about some of the stuff there. Some of which was difficult, and some of which uh, no, was, was, was was less so. Let's talk about your life now, if I may. Uh, multi-stranded life, I think it's fair to say. Mm. Um, that you've been through what you've been through, good and bad. And uh, here you are. The first thing I suppose to say is that you live in London. How's yeah. that come about? I needed a place to stay when uh, to, when I was travelling. I mean, being an Aussie, you need a you need a base somewhere. Uh, most can't of the, be Perth, can it? No, no exactly. Uh, travelling the world, otherwise otherwise you're out of a suitcase all year. Most of the guys went said my my era was were uh, America. A couple of the Mon- were Monte Carlo. Course Monaco, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, I, I like London. I mean, this is the place I sort of played. At the age of 19, I had to make a choice, and I played some junior tournaments here, Wimbledon and junior Wimbledon, and I got to know a couple of people and thought, yeah, I'll, I'm, and so I've stayed It's a balance, since. isn't it? Terrible weather, lots yeah. and lots of bands play here. Yeah, All the right. bands play well, here. I yeah. always say I'm in and out. People, everybody yeah. goes, why are you here? The weather's so horrible. I say, well, I leave at Christmas time. I go home. Every year I go You're home for Christmas. pretty brown now, for instance, you know, and, and I'm um, not. Let's put it no stronger than that. Yeah, well, I get to ch- I get a chance to travel and uh, get back to Australia for a couple of months every, every year and... Get back for Christmas Day. It's my mum's birthday. I have only missed two in my whole life, so uh, that's important for me to get back and get that a bit. strange Christmas mm. in Australia, where the sun is beating down and you're isn't and you're, that perfect? And you're cooking stuff on a barbecue. Yeah, kids are riding their bikes outside. <laughs> we go to the park and having a joy. That's what Christmas is about. And then we have the fake tree, fake smoke, uh, snow. snow on the trees <laughs> anyway. So we have both. <laughs> we don't have to freeze inside. I mean, uh, well, I mean, I know you're also a coach and, a, as you say, a teacher. You've got the Pat Cash Centres. Tell us something about your life in that department well yeah I, I i love teaching i love uh, I, I love coaching um i've done some bit of coaching i coached mark Philippousis for a while a tour player i did a bit of work with with greg wazetsky for for a while um i found um i'm not sure but i was really willing to put myself in a position that position again um to travel a, a lot with a with a player um as talented as those two guys were there was some issues uh, around that, but I, I, I started up uh, tennis academies. Um, I had one, a big one in Australia, which I've I've, uh, I've stopped now. But I'm opening up little branches of of Pat Cash uh, clubs, shall we say, in the, the the Caribbean as well. At the moment, um, I still do my commentating, of course, from the for the for the Beeb over yep. Wimbledon and a bit of the other Grand Slams on the on the radio there. CNN, um, you've worked for as well. CNN, I've got a monthly show on CNN, which which which, which I host. I do a few interviews and get a chance to play with some of the some of the players. And it's a tennis um, magazine program, so that's that's a bit of fun. And um, 
Yeah, so uh, still based around town. And again, of course, I'm still playing at some of the legends. I was going to say, yeah. and you're still playing. I mean, I really feel uh, that tennis players, most other sportsmen, are hard done by compared to golfers who yeah. they they, yeah. they do this thing right. They do golf for about thirty years, where if you're if you're half decent at it, you're a billionaire, right? And you're only ever playing in sunshine, <laughs> yeah. And then you just merrily trip. One day your watch says forty-five, and you trip into the seniors tour, which is every bit as rich. And let's be fair, you can play golf. Uh, let me. You're 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 a, you're a physical specimen and a coach. You can play golf to your seventy-five, can't you? Yeah, that's no, a great sport. That's a great thing about it. But uh, I I don't, Whereas I don't play a lot of golf. I say, oh, I'll play golf when I can't run anymore. When I can't when I can't play a real sport. Um, so. tell, tell, tell us about tell us about the seniors tour then in in the, in the tennis. It's, well, it's it's at this at this stage now. It's it's a lot of fun. You know, it's uh, we at Wimbledon the Grand Slams. You play doubles. Uh, so you, you partner up with one of the guys. Uh, I've been lucky enough the last three years to partner Mark Woodford who's one of the legendary Woodies doubles team he's my age the other Woody is too young to be in, in, the, uh, in the are you <coughs> going to get dumped when, 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 he, when he comes of age yeah I'll definitely get dumped uh, <laughs> I think I'm like he's got a few more years so I think I might be well and truly old, too old to bother playing well, then well you so. should be proud of yourself if you won Junior Wimbledon the Wimbledon tournament and Senior Wimbledon now as well yeah that, that's, that's true but... uh, who else has done that yeah, well, nobody, but I don't nobody. think anybody's bothered playing the seniors. I, I still enjoy it. I still like going out there and playing most most of the time, and, and it's a bit tougher on the body these days. But some of the tournaments are singles, and they're really full, flat-out singles. You know, I'm playing against some of the young guys like Carlos Moyer or... Ivanisevic and you know Tim, Tim Henmans of, of that sort of guy. And I take it, pretty I, much. I take you can beat Henman. Well, I don't think so. I think he's a bit <laughs> young and fast for me. Um, they know he's old. <laughs> is, is it? I know it's. I know it's an, another. Uh, I mean, I, you know, uh, given what you talked about, the pressure. Um, some of it self-inflicted. Some of it the situation of when you are playing. Big, you know, the big tournaments uh, as an individual. How much enjoyment is there now? Although you know, um, it's not just hit and hope tennis. It's ten but the way the crowd reacts to these legends matches, I think, is, mm. is is it's clear that they just love every second of watching yourself. And you can name the names yeah. to me. Um, yeah, uh, how much pleasure is that compared to what was like in the cauldron oh, of, of competitive tennis? Oh yeah, much more enjoyable. But you know, it's it's you've you got two you got many phases of your life. But that was you know one of them was to, the first one was to to try and be the best tennis player I could possibly be and hopefully win some grand slams. I mean, a lot of these kids, you know, go around the other way. They say, I want to win a Grand Slam. No, you want to be the best player you can be. If you happen to win a Grand Slam, then that's a bonus. But be the best well, you can be. Well, you're not going to win the Grand Slam it. without being a great tennis player, are you? Let's no, be honest. That's right. So, you know, a lot of the focus is on winning, 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 but it's not really it's being the best you can be. And now, you know, the pressure's off being the best. It's it, You still like to play, and you still feel like an idiot when you miss an easy shot on top of the net or a smash or serve a double fault, and you oh. But you still like you still have that wanting to, to play well. But you also think about it, oh well, I'm, I'm kind of old now. And you just have a laugh about it. Usually, the other guys down the other end are laughing at you because you missed it, and then you all laugh together. When you <laughs> won those double titles uh, at Wimbledon, how did you celebrate at the end of the matches? Uh, well, I was pretty. You know, it, it wasn't a. No, I wasn't. I wasn't climbing through the stands. Put it that way. But we were having a, we were having a good time, and uh, we ended up playing. Do you think the, you three, still... the three finals we played against Jeremy Bates and, and Anders Yarrow. We played three them three times in a row. And wow, they're good friends of ours. So let them win one. Yeah, so, no, so, so no. Jeremy Bates well, can win at Wimbledon. Yeah, well, he's yeah, he's uh, Bates. He plays a very good game of tennis uh, these days. He's gee, he's fit. So they're a bit older than us, and hopefully we'll take advantage this year again. But I think that some of the younger younger old guys are moving into our yeah into the top division, shall I say? Cuckoos in the nest, my friend. Cuckoos in the nest. Um, 
you mentioned before that um, you, you not only have you got four kids uh, from two relationships, but you also um, are a grandfather at the age of 44, quite young uh, to achieve that, um, which means that in, I think, 2010 or 11, uh, one UK women's magazine, you know I'm going to say now, voted you the sexiest grandfather of the year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I don't know. Yeah, I've always amused. I've always found it rather amusing. These top of se- sexiest, most your know, worst, best, worst. You know, oh, it's easy sort of to stuff. be fun and amusing when you're in the list. Well, yeah, no, it's it's. I, I take. I, I don't take it too too serious. I don't take. You know, it's funny because I'm in the media now. It's, it's funny yeah. how things turn around because I never really liked the media. I never really liked doing interviews. This is. I I, I enjoy something like this where you can actually talk about something but i'm very reluctant to do um i just don't feel like it's 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 me anymore even though i like talking about tennis and that sort of stuff and it's a really weird situation where i know that i'm moving i'm not no longer going to be a tennis player or i'm certainly fading away and i like doing some of the media but not all the media but there's other things in life to do and you know whether it's charities and various other things as well and it's um it's interesting phase of phase of my life and um and it's it's been quite conflicting actually because now my kids are grown up and they moved away from home as well and i found myself over the last year sort of going i'm kind of a bit lost at the moment and it was felt last time that was was really towards the end of my tennis playing career and and uh, hopefully I'm a bit wiser now that I'll make some better choices. Yeah, but, well, uh, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, and far bit from me to say, don't go, don't head off down those roads again if you can avoid it. You know, <laughs> we're all human beings. Well, I hang out, I hang out at the rock and roll gig still, and I, but I don't go backstage and party. And none of the guys that I watch can party anymore either. So we're <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you mentioned the charity work there, and I, and, uh, I only mentioned it because because you. When I looked at you, well, what things you are involved in? Of course, it's a it's a privilege if you're if you're a famous person, you can do something to help other people. There's so many of the things you're involved in. Which one would you like to choose to talk about just oh, now? Look, it's there are different things. I'm passionate about the 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 one the ones here in Britain, the orchid cancer appeal, which is a men's cancer. So I've been awareness and research as well. So that's an mm-hmm. important thing to realise prostate penile cancer. Uh, testicular well, I'm, I'm going to do this then. www.orchid-cancer.org.uk for that one. Yeah, it's all good. There's uh, Goal or another one that's an Irish-based third world charity which do help the poorest of the poor. Um, yeah, I've got that's, one in that's, the... that's www.goal.ie. Um, there's, uh, there's a couple of more ones that I've... Planet one, one Arc. Planet Arg is I'm no longer involved with, but oh, they, were, they were the biggest. Uh, we started up an environmental group, which became the biggest environmental group in Australia with uh, with a friend of mine, a, a, an English guy, and and uh, he 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 was the really the the driving power behind it. But uh, we we do a community based charity, which is not not dissimilar now, and um, which does all sorts of camp various campaigns. Uh, there's also there's different things, and the one the one thing that I haven't done, which I am doing now, is really mental health, and I think that is the most important thing. Because of your own experiences. Yeah, because of my own experiences. Because of it's just tough. It's tough for kids, and it's tough for people to have with with mental illnesses to to get support. And um, I what sort of what I'm aiming to do now is I'm developing this in Australia, and I'm I'm sure it'll come here to the UK. We're looking for some support, and we're looking for teamwork, really, people to combine with, is um, is really almost a, a life lessons 
for, for young people. I mean, it's it's so tough out there anyway, but life lessons are learning, learning how to communicate, um, learning how to set goals, learning not to get, you know, to get down, too, too down, learning what's good for you, what's not, what's not good for you. It's not good for you to sit there and play PlayStation for 12 hours a day. It, it just isn't. Um, as much as it could be fun on the weekend where you got your mates over sure, or whatever. Sure. But... And 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 it's 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 things like that. Help how to help kids get, give them a little up a hand up in in the world in the future. And it's, you know, it's not getting any easier with you know this environment, this this you know the climate that is, the uh, you know, financial climate. It's not easy for young people to come through and get a job. I mean, older people are hanging on to their jobs. Young sure. people aren't. There's not many. So there's it's very easy to to get lost and uh, that's. And, and to get depressed and to get confused and whatever else. And that's the sort of, I think, somewhere where that I'll, my next charity will be. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 